Hey everyone, this is Sam from Novel Discourse with a quick disclaimer about today's episode. We recorded this episode a few weeks ago before we made some pretty significant upgrades to our audio setup here. It's still really easy to understand what we're saying, but you might hear some slight changes in the volume of the audio as we speak throughout the episode. Again, I just wanted to have that disclaimer in here in case you're a first time listener, that this is not our normal quality of audio that we like to put out and that this is not the case with future episodes. I'm really glad you're here because Legally Blonde is a really underrated film, especially when it comes to some of the writing they do. One of the things we want to talk about is Elle Woods as a protagonist. She's a phenomenal character, and Legally Blonde provides a really nice case study for how to create a likable protagonist that your audience will root for. We also want to talk about how Legally Blonde does a coming-of-age tale for a genre and a demographic that normally doesn't get to have a coming-of-age tale. So really excited to dive into that. That's all coming up next on Novel Discourse. Let's go. Welcome to the Novel Discourse podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam. Here with my co-host, Andy. Andy, it's a pretty dark and stormy night up here in Dallas. Uh, I got my Doppler radar pulled up, and all I see is red and purple. How's yours look? Dude, it's, I, it's nice. It's a good night. I'm in Austin, Texas. Uh, I'm sure we'll get that storm uh, some hours after you. Right now, it's kind of one of those hot and heavy uh, Texas evenings where you you know there's going to be a thunderstorm, but all there is right now is a ton of humidity. But a, otherwise, a balmy well. 85 degrees and humid, and on an o- middle of October. Yeah, 85 feels like 105. Classic. Perfect Texas weather. Thanks for joining us wherever you guys are listening, wherever you get your your podcast. I kind of wish we had an, a video pulled up because right now I'm watching Andy. He's got this massive mattress just looming over and ready to fall on him (laughs) so my wife and i uh are building a new home and as we wait for them to complete construction of that home we have moved into a a rather small apartment to save money but ordered this new bed that uh from a really cool furniture store here in austin called scandinavia like six or eight months ago and they finally are delivering it tomorrow, and it is a king-size bed. So they had to deliver a king-size mattress yesterday, and I really didn't have any place for this mattress to go until the new bed gets delivered. So, Well, it sounds like you're going to have a second mattress on your hand for when I come visit your new house. Dude, hell yeah. We will have a full guest room ready to rock day one for you. Do you have room for a podcast studio over there? Oh, dude, it's already going in. It's already going in. Because, you know, I, I also host the Boys Will Be Boys Dallas Cowboys podcast. Very popular. Very huge. Huge deal. Yeah. Cowboys are looking good these days. Uh, dude, I don't even know what to do with my hands. I, I'm so un, unaccustomed to us being reliably good that I'm just trying to enjoy it. Well, listen, if you thought we were going to talk about the Dallas Cowboys the whole time, you're in luck because we're not here to talk about the Dallas Cowboys. We're here to talk about Legally Blonde and the writing behind it. We're not talking about the book written by Amanda Brown, which the movie is based off of. We're talking about the film. It's killed it in the box office. And I'm sure that if you clicked on this podcast, you've probably watched this movie more than once, just like I have. I was totally unaware of the fact that this was such a huge financial success until I started researching for this podcast. But yeah, man, they crushed this. Yeah, they they absolutely did. The budget was $18 million, and then they made... 
almost 142 million in the box office. And I didn't get a chance to see what they did after the box office, stuff like VHS and DVD, but I'm sure they did really well there as well. Yeah, according to the Wikipedia page for the film, the budget of 18 million grossed 141.8 million and they doubled that. Because this was kind of at the tail end of blockbuster, rental and physical media revenue streams, not just selling it to Netflix or whoever. So this release date was 2001. And it makes total sense when you watch the film because... July 13th, uh, 2001. So literally like the last 60 days of our innocence as a right. post-Cold War society. Like the height of our just like, we've defeated evil. There is no more communism. And then, yeah, 9-11 happens and the whole world changes. But for this gleaming moment, this was like, you know what the biggest issue in the world is, bro? That jerk who wants to destroy the rec center. We were really having a good time. It was great. Yeah, this film is really a piece of the times. Anything from the music to how they dressed to some of the topics they discussed and the sensitivities of the of the humor in that film. Very early 2000s. Feels like it came out the year that it did come out. And I actually was able to get my hands on one of the original screenplays and it would have aged significantly worse. The original screenplay that the writers came up with was really trying to ride the coattails, if you will, of American Pie. It was going to be originally a lot raunchier, which is very off-putting if you've watched Legally Blonde, because if you know what Reese Witherspoon is like off-screen and you know what Elle Woods' finished character is supposed to be, just reading some of those lines on the script and trying to imagine that in the film that we know today, it just wouldn't have fit. Because part of the great thing about Elle Woods as a character is her bubblegum innocence, how she interacts with the antagonists of the film, like all the law students, the professors at Harvard that are just super rude to her. I think if it had been like the original script and Elle Woods would have been equally as crude and as demonstrative as the people around her, as this party girl, I, I don't think we would have had that clear juxtaposition between the two parties. And therefore, it would have been a lot harder to root for her. Agreed. I, you know, watching this as a, a now much older person, and especially watching this much farther removed from the times in which it was released and made, I was actually kind of impressed with this as kind of a piece of sort of like almost subversive media. For those who were born in the 90s, raised in the 90s, you probably remember an entire swath of films that kind of the basis was the main character or one of the primary female characters was quote unquote, not like the other girls. And she would always be a brunette and didn't like everything Elle Woods is like, right? Really girly shit. You know, she reads books, she has glasses. And that quality of not being like the other girls is what attracts her to the primary male in whatever film this is. And given that most of these films revolve around like the entirety of this woman's value is based on her being attractive to this guy, she's the winner. And this movie really does flip that completely on its head. So for one thing, Elle Woods is everything that like the evil popular girl in all those movies is. She's the president of the sorority. She's a you know bombshell blonde who drives a Porsche and is super popular and dates a super hot guy. But over the course of this film, she not only remains the protagonist, but we kind of see that it is possible to be like, you don't have to like hate what is feminine in order to be like a, the good person, which was kind of pitched as the go-to thing for all these movies. And we even saw it kind of resurrect itself 
in the early 2010s in the form of there were all those the other girl memes where it'd be like oh these girls all listen to justin bieber i listen to you know the cure or whatever it was it was always like this weird juxtaposition and i really did watching this movie i just kept coming back to the fact i was like this is like the complete opposite of all those early 90s teen comedies that were based around kind of the in those movies, the girlfriend that's at Harvard, I can't remember her name, but the short-haired girl that her boyfriend is dating at Harvard would have been the, the good character in all those movies, who's like overcoming the evil of Elle Woods and getting the guy. In this movie, we're, we see that not only does is Elle the good guy, but she abandons getting the guy because she realizes that doesn't define who she is or her value. And that's I think that's a really great message to send to you know, girls that were watching this movie in 2001 that like, hey, you can go to Harvard and kick ass and you don't even need to worry about what this guy's doing. I've always in the back of my mind just viewed it as kind of like kind of a bubblegum kind of piece of fun media. And in the end, I was like, I would totally want my daughter to watch this movie. You know what I mean? It has a lot of good things to say. Well, I feel like this is a fair shot to take and it's probably the right time to take it. But I think if this movie was left up to the devices of the way that the writers originally had it pegged, it would have been that. Yeah. It would have been a party movie about a party girl. Because the way that they ended this movie originally, the script writers, Karen McCullough Lutz and Kristen Smith, the way that they had this ending originally was the trial subplot that was the last like 25 minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. The, that wasn't the, fitness, the fitness chick that had like her husband had died and all that. Right. Oh. Instead of having that, Elle was going to run off with one of her professors. And that was the end of the film. Uh, see, that sucks. I'm so glad they didn't do that. Like, cause they, right. they actually like went against that completely by having the professor like try to hit on her and she's disgusted by it and abandons the whole thing. And then luckily Luke Wilson is like, no, you're badass. Yeah, no, that's, that does suck. I don't like that at all. You, you bring up, I think the, one of the most critical elements of this story from the writing perspective, which is what the character's goals versus what their wants are. It's very yeah. important to figure out what a character's need is versus a want. Because in in a lot of stories, the character's want often brings light to where they're currently at. And and it's used kind of as a backdrop to show how much they have to grow. At the beginning of the story, her want is Warner. It's her boyfriend. She wants to get married to him. She's hoping within the first two pages of the script, she says, I want Warner to propose tonight, essentially. Right. And then her need, what she, where she truly has to get is where she gets to the very end of the film, which is realizing that she has a higher calling and that she's capable of so much more than just being someone's husband, that she's capable of being a great lawyer. Yeah. That initial setup is so beautifully done in fact it i guess you could say that it faked out a lot of people including critics because when we were preparing for this episode i saw a lot of people critics included referring to this as a romantic comedy this is not a romantic comedy no because it's really not for for this to be a romantic comedy that's a very specific genre that involves a romance as the center focal point of the plot oftentimes it will be two characters that are opposites that are bickering towards one another throughout the film and they don't like each other and then they begin to fall in love or there's some sort of um greater power that is like driving them apart right the romance with warner is the main plot for the first five minutes of the film and that's it right and it's her it's her driving force it's her want for maybe the next 25 minutes but Again, that's just one small element of 
the story. And I think anybody that's paying attention to the story knows that by the end of act one, it's not a love story. I agree. It's interesting now that I'm, cause I, until you, you walked us through what the original intent of the screenwriters were, I, I had, I did not know that. And I've, now that I'm thinking back on my last viewing of this, there are scenes that I think were holdovers from that original version a little bit. So the one I'm thinking of specifically is her application to Harvard, the video application, which I always felt like stu stuck out as weird. Don't get me wrong. I totally think that Elle Woods would submit some kind of outside the box application to Harvard, but her being in a bikini on video as kind of like a, I guess, like get these horny old dudes at Harvard to let me in thing was always a little farther because she was always kind of a respectable like level of ditzy and whatnot um right we don't see her gallivanting around with a hundred dudes she's in this super committed relationship it's a heartbreaking breakup when she goes through it she isn't like out partying all the time i mean we don't even really see her like drink or anything in the course of this movie outside of like maybe holding a martini on occasion but i will say that the guy they picked to do warner does a really great job he, he has does. mastered the like swarmy blue blood of the east coast so well and the restaurant scene where he's like given the i need a jackie not a Marilyn speech is just oh you just hate him from the jump you're just like i want to see this man hit by a, a car at high speed and it's it's awesome so yeah oh, did you see the any of the spin-off sequels to this film i believe that i saw parts of the second one i think she works in washington as a she's like trying to stop testing, Animal testing on yeah. animals right yeah i actually was reading there's a third one coming out for may of next year i don't know if that's still the case but interesting yeah me and cassie sat down after i watched the first one for this podcast we were like let's just watch the second one and i was just like highly disappointed because the, the first one really is a great self-contained unit and part of it is that it exists not in a fantasy world but you just kind of suspend a lot of your legitimate disbeliefs you'd bring to the table like all of the law stuff in the first one is just fun like her as a first year law student just walking into a courtroom and being like actually i'm totally allowed to be a lawyer and the judge being like you totally can and then they just like go off like none of that could ever happen but it's fun right and it gets you to it allows Elle woods to like be in her element in the second one she's like out there lobbying congressmen it gets very visceral and very real to the actual real world and you're just suddenly like None of this would work in the actual halls of power. So I really did think they did such a great job with the first one of just being kind of a really well self-contained story and world in which that this character exists. You know, you, you, you bring up a good point about what's possible and what's not possible. I would add to that. I'll use a fantasy term of soft world building and hard world building or what's commonly referred to as high fantasy or low fantasy. The idea being here that they take some liberties in the first movie to try to explain why things might happen in this world that stay true to the real world. For example, like how she gets into Harvard, which in that example, you can manifest a certain kind of funny story about, you know, these old men get into a room and liking what Elle Woods put on video and they let her in just based off of that. And right. how many, like, how many urban legends are there about, oh yeah, the Harvard entry exam was write a, a billion word essay about an attribute you don't like. And this kid just wrote verbosity and turned it in and they let him in, you know, like there's a thousand right. of those. And so you just, the table has been set culturally for us to believe that, you know, oh, there's room in this world for someone who's a little wacky and a little off as long as they have the skills and they work hard to like make right. it into these institutions. 
Yeah, the point I'm I'm trying to make is you can't pick and choose when you want your world to be uber realistic and follow everything to the letter of the law and when things are going to be a little bit uh, more wacky and dreamlike. So, for example, there's a scene where Elle walks into the courtroom and her law professor has been fired on the case. So they're going to let Elle, this lawsuit, be the lawyer on this big murder trial. Then someone walks up in protest and says, you know, Elle can't be the, the lawyer on this big murder trial. She's a law student. And then somebody walks up and says, well, according to Massachusetts state law, rule 3-31 case I, like, yes, she absolutely can as a, as a law student. Well, it turns out that that is an actual statute in real life, but it only refers to third year law students, right? So it's kind of a case of them trying to have their cake and eat it too, in terms of being realistic. I mean, it's kind of like if there was some high fantasy world in a novel or a movie where gravity doesn't really work and you have people flying around, you know, that's fine because you're in a fictional world and this world doesn't have to be like our world. But if, then if you show somebody flying around and then two characters are talking and they try to explain why people are flying around and they're trying to use the theory of gravity and they misexplain why people are able to fly around, right? I mean, that wouldn't work. It's like you're trying to create something out of thin air by using the actual rule and you purposely go out of your way to misexplain that rule. It would make more sense to me from a writer's perspective if the judge had just done something kind of goofy and been like, I'll allow it. Like that would have made more sense to this, to the story, if you will, as opposed to trying to be uber realistic and getting it wrong. That would have followed the criteria of suspended disbelief and these people are going to follow their own accord as opposed to the letter of the law, which is kind of how she got into Harvard. So there would have been a lot more continuity in that regard. But getting back to Elle for a second, I think one of the things that this movie does a great job of is showing her proficiency as a character. And she it shows her getting a lot of really cool wins throughout the movie, especially early on, right? Showing her ability to win arguments, to outsmart people. She leans a little bit on her knowledge of fashion in certain scenes, but she can read people really well and she's not afraid to stick up for herself and people underestimate her because of her looks and how she acts, but she's able to flip that around on people, which is one of the strongest things about this story is Elle as a character and again, her proficiencies as a protagonist driving the plot in this movie. And this movie is a comedy, but it's not a traditional comedy in the sense that Elle's making you laugh out loud. The movie just is sprinkled with moments where she gets a big win against somebody that's underestimating her. And it just kind of leaves a smile on your face, right? There's a lot of clever scenes, not a lot of laugh out loud scenes, but just a lot of clever scenes. And the setup for those clever scenes is pretty easy, right? Because Elle is such a clever character and she's so much smarter than she appears. She's nice to everybody, no matter who it is. She's nice to her sorority people. She's nice to people that she meets at Harvard, even people she just met. She's nice to her professors. And how do people treat her, especially at Harvard? Well, they turn around and are just so mean to her. And they're mean to her in such a way where it's like a very, it's not like they're having a bad day and they're mean to everyone. It's like they're judgmentally mean to her in particular because they don't like what she is or what they perceive her to be at the very least. Right. So if, if all L was was that, in other words, if, if all she was was nice, trying to be nice to everybody, and then there was some very unlikable people that were mean to her, 
you as the audience would immediately be rooting for Elle Woods, right? Yeah. But then there's the third component that she brings to the table, which we were just discussing, which is her competency. Mm-hmm. And the first scene that displays that was the scene where she goes to buy a dress and the lady who's selling the dress cuts off the, the price tag and tries to sell it as something that it's not. And if I tried to say exactly the, the dialogue, back yeah, and forth, it's, I would she, it. she pulls out some like straight up material science. Like she's like right. a chemist for a second in, in describing the materials that make right. the dress. And this happens like within five minutes of the film and you, you barely have just met Elle. And all you know is that she's like super nice. And then she owns this person that's trying to pull one over on her and see so her immediately. Like that was awesome. Yeah. And Elle does that like every eight minutes of the film. She does something like that. And you're like, that was so cool. And so by the end of the film, you're just rooting so hard for her because all she does is be nice to people that are mean to her. And then win these really cool arguments. (laughs) Right. The more you're describing this, the more I'm just like so perplexed at the idea of this alternate version of this film where she's like kind of a wild person who I guess would still maintain that competency at some level. Like, she'd be like a work hard, play hard type who like rages, but also like somehow wins the arguments and stuff. Ah, that would just be so much less satisfying than the version we got. I'm so glad that didn't either do well with test audiences or like died in the writer's room or whatever, but uh, that would have been a, such a, a letdown compared to that. I mean, we would have never known obviously what we were missing, but I don't think we'd be talking about this movie now if they no. had gone with that version. It's it's such an important part of her character that she's that she is like unstained from the like the behavior of the people from Harvard. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a huge part of her character. And so then she goes to Harvard and her goal is still to chase after Warner. And she's she gets to Harvard about page 25 of the script, which is like about the one third point, uh, maybe a little bit earlier than that. And. Pretty early on, she's thrown into the fire with some of these these classes that she's in. She meets Vivian, who is Warner's new fiance, which he, she she learns later. But first, she meets some of her professors who are just eviscerating her in the classroom. And it kind of brings on that initial doubt, which is it's about that time in the story where she's gone off on her journey. She knows kind of what she has to do, but she hasn't really learned her lesson yet. So she's got a little bit of some growing to do, right? And so that initial first 10 minutes at Harvard is pretty difficult for her. Yeah, it's there's it's a very weird sensation a little bit as a viewer, I feel like, because there are moments of this film where you are highly aware of how oblivious Elle Woods is. Like when she pulls up to Harvard in the, in the Porsche with like the big pink louis vuitton luggage and the dog with the little tutu on and stuff and everyone's just like looking at her crazy and i too found myself being like what is this chick's deal but as you get to know her better you come to understand that that's just kind of her her shtick another interesting aspect to it is i think is they show her parents a couple times in this movie and they are shown to be like kind of pieces of shit as well as other characters. I think that that is put in there to show that Elle Woods is a a self-made good person. Like she arrived at her wit and moral standards and direction in life and motivation internally and not by training or by engagement with her her own family. Because her dad's just like straight up like going to schools for ugly people, you know, just like poor people, like real, real heinous shit. And uh, right. During her graduation, he like toasts her with a martini and holds a martini up in the air in the last scene. 
Yeah. Which is just so ridiculous. And I think it just outlines the kind of, yeah, they were very weird for sure. I, I think that this is a movie that when I look at it in its totality, I think, like I said at the beginning, I think it had, it was more, had more important things to say than maybe you really realize when you're, you're seeing it as a young person, especially with like, when you're the target audience of this movie, I think maybe some of the more important pieces of the subtext go over your head a little bit, but I do wish this had been left as a self-contained story. And obviously that's an impossible ask when a movie gets made for $18 million in Hollywood as a budget is like not indie, but like pretty close, like very small budget for a film. And to gross, you know, almost 10 times what they paid to make it, they were going to make another one. But when movies do that, when they make so much, so many times their budget, they really had nowhere to go but up, I guess, as far as like the scale at which she was operating, because you couldn't just come back to Harvard. So they had her go to DC to like kind of take on the halls of power, which she kind of did in the first one in her own way. The second one is just like really ham-fisted in its attempts to recreate the same kind of moments we get in the first one. And it's just like, I'll never say that the first one is like a really a tour de force as far as like legal understanding or legal science. But the second one is truly like a child's understanding of how politics works and like how our country, our democracy operates. Um, And then I want to say there was like a, I want to say there's like a direct to DVD one that's like, they made with some twins and it was called legally blondes but yeah i bet you that one is a that's probably a real chore i'm not gonna lie to you people do strange things for money making legally blondes is one of them dude yeah what if you were like if you're a director and that's like your big chance is like they tap you get you get to sign a deal with warner brothers and you think you're gonna get to direct like batman and instead they want you to direct legally blondes that's gonna get direct to dvd release it's funny you say that i was looking at the Wikipedia pages, some of the actors, and I was thinking the same thing. They probably thought this was their big break. And then you click on the actor's page and it's like two sentences long. Ugh. And like the the photo of them is was taken in like 2008. And you're just like, man, they they really had one shot and it was it was legally blonde. I think the thing that really sucks about it even more as in that particular time period is that today if you direct a movie like that and all that we don't have straight to dvd really anymore we have straight to streaming and if, if it's good if it's any good and it ends up on netflix it might take off and you get noticed you know what i mean or like someone might see that because it's so accessible man back in the straight to dvd days unless someone is just a diehard legally blonde fan or it's in the three for five dollar bin at walmart and they grab it in a in a handful of other terrible discs no one's ever seeing that for sure can we spend a second talking about the some of the side characters? Because yeah. I feel like overall they did a pretty good job of of not only crafting some of these characters and where they were going to fit in the character web, but then also the casting. I'm just going to go on the list based on the, like how these actors are presented online. First, I want to talk about Bruiser Woods, the dog. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so Luke Wilson, I, I I read some critics that were basically just saying that he was a pretty face walking around the set. And I don't know. I think that his, his character, the way that he started having these small interactions with L and then ended up being on the council for the court. If he wouldn't have been there, he, he was the only one supporting L throughout the entire court case until he, yeah. until she went back and visited Paulette in her last hurdle that she had to overcome. Right. I think that, that when they introduced Luke Wilson's character, Emmett, how they used him was Pretty spot on. I think people were hoping that he would be the romantic interest earlier. 
because that, that's what make it a romantic comedy of sorts. But that's again, that's not what the film is about. Well, and I'll tell you what, obviously, they're like engaged in the second movie and it's not good because like kind of the vibe of her is that she's like this strong, independent woman. And so when she's attached at the hip to some dude and she's just kind of half of a couple, it kind of robs her of her, her, her character in the first one is really, you do get the vibe where it's like, Hey, she would be a great piece of a team, but she's also like totally strong enough and courageous enough to stand on her own. And so as soon as you kind of pair her off into this engaged relationship with Luke Wilson in the second movie, that is totally gone. And and there's no chance that there will be any other interaction of that kind with anyone else as well. So it's kind of like, okay, that that entire dimension is removed from this character. Right. Um, so I liked how they played it in the first one. Although, again, yeah, I agree with you. I like Luke Wilson. I think Luke Wilson is an actor that kind of plays the same character in every movie, a little bit like his brother. He's kind of just playing Owen Wilson in every movie and just being like, wow. And Luke Wilson is kind of doing a softer wow. But he was good for this. Yeah. She didn't really have a, a true ally in her character web until Luke Wilson. Um, I would even argue that Jennifer Coolidge's character, Paulette, who worked at the nail salon, she wasn't a true ally. She was more of your typical sidekick that needed dragging along, right? For sure. She didn't have, you're drawing your character web and you want a ally. You're really more thinking of somebody that is, as competent or more competent than your character that can kind of help prod them along and can be supportive for them. Whereas a sidekick is really more of the character's opposite that has sometimes even more growing to do than her character. And that's Jennifer Coolidge's character. Like, yeah, and I, she's I everything felt, that L's not in a way. I, I felt like there's a little bit of a vibe in the movie of like, they want you to feel like you want to be like Elle Woods. Like a little girl watching this movie, they, they want you to look at Elle Woods and be like, man, you know, that'd be really cool if I was like that. And so that character is effectively like enacting that idea, the, that ideation that like, we all have a little Elle Woods in us. And if we allow ourselves to like be bold and be courageous and just be who we are, you know, unabashedly, and confidently we can get what we want out of life and that character we watch her go from like kind of being a doormat who doesn't have the courage to like talk to the cute ups guy or like go get her dog back from her shitty ex-husband and through like spending time with l and via osmosis kind of absorbing a little bit of that l into herself she becomes a, a much more confident version of herself well she learns bend and snap is what happens. bend and snap is crucial dude absolutely crucial okay so i even as a kid when i first saw this film and then all my rewatches i never really understood the point of the bend and snap scene and when i turned this movie on i thought okay now that i've seen this film i've been i've been writing for over 10 years i think it'll make sense this time and i'll tell you what it is as confusing to me as it ever as it ever was the bend and snap scene is lost on me really what are your thoughts on bend and snap i've always just kind of th thought of it as like a very uh maybe not so subtle like look at my butt maneuver uh drop something on the floor bend over uh and then as the person who you want their attention's attention is drawn to it you pop back up and you're like hey what's up so i might not be getting it either i haven't ever dug too much into it to be clear, I was asking more from like a writing perspective what you thought of the scene, not do you do you think oh, that I could I, utilize the bend and snap in my personal life? Right. Okay. No, no, I, I, I sorry. When you were like, I've always been confused by it. I was like, really? You didn't understand what they were using that for? I think uh, I, 
from a writing perspective, I think it is kind of like the physical embodiment of that, you know, be like L, be confident in who you are. You're like drawing lots of attention to who you are and being unafraid to be seen. It's kind of like a different version of like, rock what you got. You know what I mean? Like, right, it's, right. A, it's an empowering thing for her. I think that's how I took I, it anyway. I had to go out of my way to Google why they put the bend and snap scene in the movie. So when you're, when you have a sidekick character, you don't want to fall in the trap of having them just be in the scenes of the main character or like have no plot for themselves. And it sounds like that's what their concern was. Their concern was that Paulette, again, Jennifer Coolidge's character didn't have enough with her story. So they mm -hmm. wanted to add a B side to her plot, which was her basically showing that she wanted the UPS guy, figuring out how she would do it, and then landing the UPS guy, which makes sense. Yeah. They were saying that they didn't write that scene originally, in, and then they found out like while they were filming, like, oh, the pacing is off. Like, we need her to have another scene, which I get. And they said they found this out as they were drinking at a bar, which makes uh, sense. This is very much like a, I was drinking and I wrote this into my script and I didn't edit it. But, yeah, you know, looks like they had fun filming it. I'll say that. I mean, yeah, they're smiling and stuff. The part that's always strange to me is the hands. The hand yeah. motion is a lot weirder than the bend and snap part. They always end up looking like Tyrannosaurus Rexes to me. Yeah. Apparently they were going to originally, when they started talking about having a B plot for Paulette, they were going to have the store be robbed, which is huh. actually, I think that makes more sense. That would have been a very her. strange tonal shift though. Like, yeah, that's true. I guess it depends. Are you talking about like they walk into the store the next, like, in the morning and it's been robbed or like someone comes in there with a handgun and says empty the register because those are very different I, I bet it's that but i think if they had done something more like shoplifting and then she confronted the guy you'd have kept your tone while having a more fitting scene i don't know you can you can cut it a million different ways I, after doing some research i see what they were trying to do with it but ultimately that scene was just uh it's a strange scene there, you know, and, and that's kind of the thing about this film is it's a, I said this earlier, but it's a comedy, but it doesn't leave you laughing out loud a lot. It's more just, it's a feel good is what it is. Yeah. There's comedy elements to it, but it just makes you feel good watching Elle kind of conquer these people that are being mean to her the whole time, essentially. Yeah, I'd agree. It had a little bit more gravitas to it as an older watcher. It's a, it's not something I would like watch every month, but one viewing every once in a while is really satisfying and you probably get a weird hankering for it from time to time. So I had a really good time. I'm glad we picked this one, man. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think it, it has a unique place in that it's a, it's a coming of age story for a different demographic than we're used to seeing a coming of age story because it's most when you think of coming of age story you think of harry potter you think of like preteen you think of teenagers but i think all age groups have a certain coming of age in their own right and this is one that's geared more towards young adults yeah like meaning uh fresh out of college or grad school or uh maybe even in college where this is a coming of age story for 20 year old woman, which is needed and isn't often portrayed. And that I think was, was an interesting twist on this genre. So we'll give it the rating because that's what we do here. So for a coming of age comedy, which is the genre we're going to choose to call it because that's okay. what it most accurately is. One out of 10. You're giving it a one out of 10. No, I'm, 
I'm asking you what your one out of ten is. Sorry for not making that oh, clear. Oh, like I was trying one, to be. I was trying to be theatric. One to ten. One to ten. Gotcha. Okay. I was like one out of ten. Damn, dude, that's not the vibe I got from you when you were talking. Movie sucks. It's just a piece of shit. Um, I think that this movie is a a solid eight. I don't think it tries to do too much, and I don't think it, a movie like that should. It's tough because for what it is, like within its own genre, etc., it's pretty perfect. I don't. I wouldn't make many changes to it yeah eight seems right it's very positive it's not gonna blow you away this isn't a movie that you need to see before you die or anything but it's very entertaining and it's very fun i i'm gonna give it a seven and here's okay. why i as i rewatched it and then i reread the original script and then i reread one of the edited scripts i i can see where there was struggle to add punchy lines mm-hmm I've said this before. It's it's really satisfying to watch L conquer some of these people and to grow as a character. But at the end of the day, when I'm watching a comedy, I want to really be like drawn in with you know some some level of either laughter or chuckle or something like that. Didn't really get it from this film. As I reread the script, I didn't find there was a lot of great lines. And then if you watch, if you read the original script, it's just like it's strange how bad the comedy is like i feel like if i read the script i would appreciate more reese witherspoon because i think yes, l woods yes, is so but... so dependent on just her presence l woods yes. is, a, is just kind of a maybe just a, a a reese with the volume and the color turned up a little bit you know what i mean but yeah i could definitely i can definitely feel that just based on the tone of how you said the original one was this is the list of actresses that they said were in the running to be l Charlie Theron, Gwyneth Paltrow, Alicia Silverstone, Katherine Heigl, which I didn't realize Katherine Heigl was big back then, but Christina Applegate and Jennifer Love Hewitt. And I got to say, like half of those, I can't even imagine playing L. Like Jennifer Love Hewitt, absolutely not. Maybe Alicia Silverstone, because I feel like she kind of played the similar character in Clueless a little bit. That's fair. Um Gwyneth Paltrow seems like she maybe she could have played it, but I just it really feels like this movie. It, it's one of those roles where this this story is so protagonist driven, and I really can't imagine the protagonist being portrayed much differently, and therefore I can't imagine it being anybody else but Reese. I totally agree. So shout out to Reese Witherspoon, man. She, she shout did out this to Reese. Justice. Yeah, and every time I see her in a in a film or movie or show afterwards where she's playing more of like a serious character like was it what is it called pretty little lies or pretty pretty little liars pretty, pretty little liars or all i don't know there's there's a few different shows about being little or pretty and lying or i don't lying. know lying but she's in one of those shows and it's a pretty dark show and it's kind of harder to like i always think of her as l is what i'm getting at so yeah definitely I'm sure that it is kind of difficult to play an iconic role for that reason. I mean, even less iconic characters. I always the one I always think about is uh, Homeboy from Entourage that played the main guy in Entourage. He's pretty much just that guy forever, and so now everyone's like, he wants to be a serious actor, you know? And like everyone's just like, nah, you're that no, guy from no Entourage. Thanks. I I again I I rated this a seven out of ten, and I really feel like I I. As this being a writing podcast, I rated a seven out of ten as a as a written movie. I think Reese ups the average just a little bit because she does such a great job with it. And then obviously we talked about this, but like the soundtrack, yeah, it slaps. Like perfect day, banger. 
it was made in a time of both great and terrible music. And so you have to really be from that time period to enjoy that music, I feel like. It's right when Swedish house music took over boy band pop and created the Backstreet Boys. And then every single artist that came along wanted to have the same kind of background noise. And it's like the same, like eight sound effects and instruments just blaring at you. And it's super campy, but I love it. uh, Totally unrelated to our podcast, but you have to watch the HBO documentary on Woodstock 99. It's incredible. (laughs) The look at what culture was in 1999, where we were just like, we need to find the musical acts that are going to define this generation and have an impact outside of just right now, just are going to be remembered a hundred years from now. Okay. So Saturday night headliner, Limp Bizkit. <laughs> like, it's so <laughs> bad, dude. It's so bad. Yeah. It's great. It's, Highly it's recommend. Like, this song will define a generation and it's, I saw the sun. Yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> dude, the lineup on Saturday night is literally like Alanis Morissette, Limp Bizkit, Kid Rock, and then Rage Against the Machine. And I, Hey, Atlantis Morissette is on one of those talent shows that are coming out. You know there's like nine talent shows every... That, that our parents like... all watch somehow? Yeah, yeah. There's the one where like they uh, they put a celebrity in a costume. Yeah, and the, they mask, dance. the mask singer. Yeah, and there's a whole series the, of these now. I, I know we're getting way off course. There's a show from the early 2000s that I didn't remember existed. I don't know if you do. It's called Superstar USA. Do you remember this show? Uh, No. Okay, it is a mean version of American Idol. So the plot is they found a whole bunch of people that cannot sing, that are terrible, but think that they're good singers. And then the whole show revolves around them convincing these people that they are in fact winning a game show where they're going to be a superstar. And they take them house shopping for mansions, work with these vocal coaches who are like, oh my God, you're the best voice I've ever heard. All this shit, dude. They bring in a a crowd. The only way they could get the crowd, a live studio audience for the performances to like not reveal that this is a joke was they told the audience for this show that these were Make-A-Wish kids. And so these people are like up there singing terribly and the audience is like, woo! And then the big like season finale is they're like, just kidding, you're a talentless hack. (laughs) Ha ha! Television. I was like, damn, dude. America was mean as fuck, dude. Like we were just running out of shit to do. What year did that come out? Like 2001, the same year as this other show. Lily Bond. The, yeah, and this other show called The Swan, which was where they took ugly people and they got them like plastic surgery and all kinds of really radical body modifications and made them pretty. And that was like the show. Like that's horrifying. Like Time out on that. Extreme Makeover. Was there like a Extreme Makeover Home Edition? Was there an Extreme Makeover, but it's that? Like. There's been a bunch of that kind of show for sure. I mean, Queer Eye for the straight guy was effectively that just with a gay twist. The Swan was like chicks showing up and they'd be like, okay, first thing we got to get you lipo. And then we're going to do a chin reconstruction to give you a better dimple. Like real hardcore changing their entire Are they still taking applications for that? (laughs) Dude, I don't know, man. You might want to holler at them. I watched like two two episodes of that and two episodes of Tell the Truth. And I was just like, man. Game shows were wild in, in the early 2000s, bro. Tell the truth, man. There was some British reality show where they came to the States where basically you just like, they ask you real questions in front of your spouse. Yeah, that's that's what tell the truth was. They ask you the questions beforehand on a lie detector. 
And then they ask you the questions in front of your spouse and you have to decide whether or not you want to lie or not. And like, if you do lie, if you lie, you, you lose the money. And so you have to like, tell the truth. I, I know that we're a writing podcast, but we, we could do that one episode. Why even know we're we should not just married. do a whole, we should just do a whole episode on like horrific game shows. There are a ton of them out there. We go, we're going to the golden era of Island based sexual game shows right now dude yeah like love island and i don't love island jordy and love island essex and love island usa and love island turkey so i i know we're really really going off the deep end with this but humble brag i got stranded in a hotel room in switzerland and the only show in english was gordy shore which is oh hell yeah dude yeah that's like the that's the the jersey shore but for people from like manchester or whatever no they're not from manchester get it right they're from newcastle newcastle yeah i don't care uh what your taste is you got to do some youtubing of gordy shore because it's just ridiculous bro doesn't it have that one that's where that famous clip is from right where the guy's like on the date with the girl and he asks her to like take their yeah, relationship yeah, to the yeah, next yeah. level yeah yeah oh my god I, that's too, too I'm classic almost 100 sure it's that show uh we might have to do an entire episode on that yeah, let's do it the cards told them dude it was a full moon <laughs> okay let's definitely do that do we have anything else or should we wrap uh <laughs> why don't you do the sign off because last time i screwed it up we had to edit it out you're good. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if you'd like a little bit of what you heard, feel free to leave a like, leave a comment, subscribe. Uh, tell us what you thought. We always love hearing from the fans. Thank you so much for listening. As always, this is Novel Discourse. I'm Andy Catelli. And I'm Sam Clark. Peace.